Well, if you have reared children or even spent much time around them, you know that one phrase you never have to teach them is that isn't fair. We're all, every one of us, pretty much born with an eye to fairness, at least as far as it concerns us. The little phrase, I don't deserve this, can be another way of saying the same thing. But saying, I don't deserve this, can mean, and the way you use it down in the depths of your soul can reveal a lens through which you perceive and interpret the world. I'm legally required to wear corrective lenses while driving, and according to my commercial pilot certificate when flying, quote unquote, in all critical phases of flight. I know, <laughs> I know. One would think that all phases of flight are critical. <laughs> but uh, to the FAA, this means when taking off or landing. Because of a slight astigmatism, uncorrected, I have a little depth perception problem, which believe it or not, can be kind of a big deal when flying close to the ground. And my lenses literally change my perception. Metaphorically, all of us wear some lens or more precisely lenses through which we perceive the world. And so we're never neutral observers. None of us, no matter how objective we think we may be. And all of us probably think we're pretty objective. Some of you know about something called the Ladder of Inference, mainstreamed by Peter Senge in his book, The Fifth Discipline, something that's been around for about 50 years, though. The Ladder of Inference seeks to explain how people both make and sustain their assumptions about the world, literally how their lenses are shaped. Basically, it says that as humans, we're constantly taking in data from the world around us like a video What's actually happening? Something like 11 million bits of information per second are coming into our brain. But because the human brain can consciously handle only about 40 to 50 bits a second, I must select and just as importantly deselect the bits that I pay attention to. I then add meaning to those bits, both cultural and personal, we're going up the rungs of the ladder now, interpret seeing the world, adding meaning to those bits. I make assumptions based on the meanings that I added. I draw conclusions based on those assumptions. I adopt beliefs about the world based on my conclusions, and then I act on those beliefs. I'm glad there's not another rung I cannot reach any higher. Acting on those beliefs, then, over time, becomes something called a reflexive loop. And I do it all again, all the same steps, creating habits formed by years or decades of practice. This happens, by the way, in the blink of an eye and is unchecked, almost entirely self-referential. It's a fascinating and informative thing to explore, and it would be easy for us to spend hours talking about it. I only know about it 
because of some consulting work that I did with a, a local company or some coaching work that I did with them. But the important thing, though, is that we all, and this is what it teaches, we all, every one of us, have our very own ladders of inference, which, because left unchecked, are almost entirely self-referential, are especially pronounced when what's happening is happening to us. Because of this, many, if not most, perceive and interpret the world primarily, primarily through the lenses of equity or fairness. We hear a lot about this in our day. These folks are constantly sizing up, comparing, calculating, blaming, feeling like they're owed something by our government, by our friends, our family, or even by God. The prophet Jonah in the passage that we read today is a really, really perfect example of this. Angry at God, and by the way, don't you love a book in the Bible that ends with 120,000 persons who don't know their right hand from their left and also much cattle? <laughs> you want to turn, oh, hey, Thomas is here. You guys can go. And I'm sure he's brought, bringing some other children with him. So, <laughs> hi, Thomas. No, we're, we're glad you made it safely. I, I always want to flip the page after, when I get to the end of Noah ending, or Jonah ending on that question. But angry at uh, Jonah here, here's Jonah, angry to the point of death, both that he hadn't gotten what he felt he deserved by God in his utterly predictable great mercy and steadfast love. And that he had spared the people of Nineveh from what Jonah felt they deserved. It wasn't fair. But there's another way to learn to see the world, and it, and it must be learned through the lenses of grace. You realize that most days are, are better than you deserve, and the hard days, well, you work to believe that they're for your good, and when other people succeed, you're genuinely glad. Instead of experiencing life as a series of disappointments, one occasion after another where you're not given what you believe you deserve, you experience your life as a gift. And whatever good you have or see in life, you know that it's by the grace of God only. These are profoundly different lenses through which to perceive the world. And Jesus tells a story about grace in today's gospel reading that can help reveal which lenses we might ourselves be wearing. Matthew 20, verses 1 through 16. There was a landowner who went out to hire laborers. The workday began at 6 a.m., and so he sets out early to get some workers for his vineyard. Apparently, you would have had people hanging around some public place looking for work and during harvest time, especially landowners, would come and hire day laborers to work in the fields. This guy hires a few and agrees to pay them a denarius, standard for a day's work. It wasn't a lot of money, but it was fair. 
And he goes out again at 9 a.m. and at noon and at 3 p.m. and finally at 5 p.m., one hour before everybody clocks out. And when 6 p.m. rolls around, the landowner gets the foreman and he starts handing out money. And he gives all the workers the same pay. This naturally upsets the first group because they'd worked harder, they'd worked longer for the same pay. Not fair. So naturally, they complain to the landowner. And in response, the landowner asks three really provocative questions. The first one in verse 13 is this. Friend, I'm doing you no wrong. Don't, didn't we agree? Didn't you agree with me for a denarius? The workers who came in first think the landowner's being unfair because the latecomers got as much as they did. And candidly, it's easy to see their point. They were there early. They'd worked through the heat of the day. And these bums roll in around 5 p.m. So naturally, they're thinking, we've been here sun up to sundown. And these loafers got here an hour ago. And what gives him the right to give them the same amount as he gave us? And if we're honest, we have to ask, yeah, what about that? I, that's certainly not what I'd want. But Jesus so often does this with parables. He gets us relating to the wrong people. In that regard, isn't, it's not unlike the parable of the prodigal son. This elder son is incensed that the younger son who squandered his inheritance is welcomed home by his father with unabashed lavishness. That guy gets the fatted calf for squandering his inheritance? It's not fair. No, it's not fair. And that's exactly what we feel when we hear this parable. How unjust of the landowner not to give those who labored all day in the heat their just reward. How unfair of the landowner to treat each of the laborers equally despite the disproportionate effort they'd expended. They had worked 12 times as long and got the same measly denarius. Not fair. Hey, we can fall into this even in the, the, the kingdom uh, of the heavens. What, you know, what's, what's God doing over there? Do they, do they really deserve that? I mean, do they really deserve those gifts, those talents, those abilities, those possessions, that social status, or that family? I've worked harder, sacrificed more, served better. Have they earned God's blessing? As I have? The thing is, grace means that from our viewpoint, the books never balance. Grace isn't about equity, but about something entirely undeserved. It's not about an economic exchange, but rather about a bestowing of something unearned, no matter what time someone may have put in or how undeserving we deem them to be. Grace violates our own sense of fairness, our own sense of credits and debits, our own sense of how things would be if we ran the world, because grace is a lousy bookkeeper. And the underlying issue here isn't really even whether or not God is doing too much for someone else. The question this parable asks is, has God been faithful to you? 
Has he been true to his word? God is not unfair so long as he lives up to his promises to you. That's the point. Did I not promise you a denarius? I gave you a denarius. Where's the unfairness? Has God been true to his word for you? He's promised in grace, in his grace, mercy and forbearance to forgive your sins and adopt you into his family. Has he done that? He's promised in that family as a wise and loving father to sanctify you, to make you more like Jesus, uncomfortable as that can be at times. Is he doing that in you? He's promised to work all things, the good and the bad, which in the rearview mirror can turn out to be some of the best for your good and his. Can you see that in your life over time? He's promised to meet all your needs. Look around. Has he met yours? Pretty much everything else is gain. This is not an easy topic because I know that some of you have and are enduring more heartache and setback, setback that I can fathom. Trials and suffering and pain that I know nothing of. I don't use these words lightly, but surely you can reflect on your life and see the innumerable blessings too. When I was a kid growing up in the Baptist church that I grew up on, we had, we had this song that we sang, and I know you guys had to have sung it too. Count your blessings, name them one by one. Count your blessings, see what God has done. Only We would always say, count your blessings, name them ton by ton, because um, we were creative that way. And... Um, it's kind of a silly song, really. It sounds like it should be in a carnival or something like that, but it's a great idea. You know, for those of us who uh, faithfully watched ev every episode of Ted Lasso, um, we, are, we would be familiar with be a goldfish. What does that mean? Why are goldfish the happiest creatures on earth? Anyone? Yeah. Ten seconds. Goldfish have a 10-second memory. That's why they're always happy. Who knew? But maybe, just maybe, God wants to remind you and me to have a little longer memory. Not just over the last months or years, but over decades. I believe that will be decades. Have you forgotten what God has done for you? Are you seeing your life through the lens of fairness or the lens of grace? So there's a second question in verses 14 and 15. Take what belongs to you and go. I choose to give to this last worker as I gave to you. Am I not allowed to do what I choose with the things that belong to me? These men were complaining about their rights. They said, we worked all day, they worked one hour, and we didn't get paid anymore. Don't we have a right to our fair share? But the landowner sees the business of rights differently. He says, in effect, you have a right to receive exactly what I promised you. That's your right. Take your pay and go. You have a right to it. But then he says, let's talk about another right. As master of this house, don't I have the right to do what I want with my money? And I believe what he's getting at is this. God is in debt 
to no one. He gives according to his grace. It's only out of his inexhaustible riches that any of us has any good gifts. It's his money, his gifts, his blessing, his talents, his skills, his opportunity, his grace. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. And so he distributes all of these things as he pleases. To be sure, Jesus was telling this parable to Jews, the people of the promise, the ones who'd been there doing the work since the first. And the point of contention and anger for them in Jesus's day was, first of all, the tax collectors and the sinners, because they were coming into the kingdom of heaven. And second, the Gentiles, who were also being welcomed into the kingdom. The, the vineyard is a common Old Testament metaphor for Israel, and Jesus is speaking of a time when these sinners and tax collectors and Gentiles would, would come and be grafted into the vine as an equal part of the vineyard. These Jews have been here since six in the morning. And they had the patriarchs and the law and tradition, and they'd been through the exodus and the exile, and they'd done it all in the heat of the day. And now some sinners and Gentiles come in, and it's 5 p.m., and, and what? They end up in the same place as us? Hardly seems fair. That's why Jesus asked, don't I have a right to do what I want with my grace? But this, this parable reaches far beyond first century Israel, right into our day-to-day -day existence. We may not articulate, articulate it precisely like this, but how many times in the depths of our hearts have we grumbled the same kind of thing? Haven't I sacrificed? Haven't I been faithful? I think I'm owed. I certainly have. I mean, I've confessed to a few of you that on Lauren and, and my last vacation, uh, which was totally undeserved, totally unexpected, I was bitter by Thursday that I wasn't a billionaire. <laughs> I have a, a, a good friend and pastor who was, they were trying to, to build a, a new church building, he went away on sabbatical and some guy in their church that they didn't even know about really gave him $10 million while he was on a sabbatical. So the first thing that happens when he walks in is his treasurer says, hey, we need to talk. I mean, I'm very happy for him, but come on. We need a building too. And we only need two and a half million dollars. So if you know of anyone, but this, this question, don't I have a right to do what I want with my grace, shows that God's great gifts, simply because they are God's, are apportioned by him as by grace he chooses. Which is sometimes a hard thing to accept. Then there's a final question then in, in verse 15 that cuts to the heart of the matter. Or do you begrudge my generosity? The landowner says, in essence, this isn't about a denarius. This isn't about hard labor in the sun. It's about your heart. You're upset because I'm generous. 
And this ought to prompt us to ask, am I the kind of person who genuinely marvels at God's generosity, or am I envious when I see it in others? We think, I wouldn't be so unhappy with what I have, except that I see others having so much more. Trust me, this happens in ministry all the time. It can, happen, it can happen in your family and with your kids. Wow, those kids over there look like a dream. And then you meet their parents and they ask you, seriously, so, so, so tell me, how do you get your children to stop reading so much? And you're like, yeah, that, that is a problem. And then just kind of trail off. People write things on Facebook or X, formerly Twitter. What was Elon Musk thinking? They think there's nothing like, or they post, there's nothing like the sound of kids waking up in the morning singing hymns. And your kids are in the kitchen having a knockdown, drag out fight over the last Pop-Tart. I mean, it seems like social media is just a perpetual temptation to envy and, and jealousy and de de depression. By the way, I, I listened to an interview yesterday with Jean Twenge, and I thought her name at one time was Jean Twen. She's a, a psychologist that has done a lot of writing on generational differences. There's been a huge spike in clinical depression between millennials and Gen Z. And you know what the only difference is? Smartphones. Get a flip phone. But it's, it affects even us as adults. Everything everybody's doing and has. You see their jobs or their money or their vacations or their opportunities or their advantages because they started life on third base, obviously unfair. Or their gifting or their abilities or how spiritual they are or how their stupid good looks or their connections. And it can seem just fan a fire of discontent and envy and jealousy. But it only just fans it. Because the reason we get envious and jealous doesn't come from outside of us. It comes from within. It comes from our heart, which the prophet Jeremiah tells us is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. This is why our ladders of inference can get us in trouble. We can think, if I had just a little bit more or a little bit of what they had, I wouldn't have these kinds of issues. Nope. That makes it sound like the problem is out there, when in fact the problem is in here. Because of the fall, every human heart is bent towards seeing the world through its own self-centered lens of fairness. Like Jonah, we begrudge God's generosity to others while forgetting his generosity to us. Because of the fall, that's our default. But it's not our design. It's not how it ought to be. Within the culture of the kingdom of the heavens, we ought to be able to genuinely cheer each other on when God is showing particular favor and blessing to someone besides us. And for those whom God is particularly blessing, you ought never assume that it's something that you have earned, something you deserve, because something that you have a right to. It's, it's only God's generosity, and you should be humble and grateful. And then finally, Jesus says in verse 16, the last will be first and the first will be last. Don't rack your brain trying to figure that one out. Here it is. 
the first will be last and the last will be first because the last actually received the same as the first and the first actually received the same as the last. They all get a denarius. It's not a math problem or a riddle. The culture of the kingdom of the heavens doesn't operate like the world's cultures. It's counter. It's in, in, inverted. It's surprising. It's not first come, first served. It's not based on seniority or hard work. It's human nature to want to be first. But Jesus says that's actually a good way to end up last. Are you prepared to be last or do you cling to an attitude of firstness? Why does the kingdom work this way? What's so great about being last that they'll end up first? I believe it's this. The last will be first because they know they're last. And the first will be last because they think for all the world that they're really first. And that's what it comes down to. You want to make yourself super happy? Go through life saying, I really deserve to be in last place, but I'm not. I can't believe it. Those are the people that end up first. You want to make yourself and everyone around you miserable? Have a chip on your shoulder. Life isn't fair. I never get what I deserve. Some of us, you know, we pay lip service to grace, but deep down feel like we deserve just a little bit more because of our history, because of our theology, because of our obedience, because of our sacrifice, because of our status, or our parenting, or our education, or our vocation. The list is long, and we know it well. But I believe Jesus says we must embrace, as if for the first time, the reality that you and I have no right to God's goodness. Apart from your grace, there is no health in us. Apart from your grace, we are not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under your table. It's all grace. And grace is a really lousy bookkeeper. Thanks be to God. You never want to shake your fist at God and say, would you for once just give me what I deserve? Because what if he did? We go through life believing we ought to be first or at least be a lot closer to the front. We're bound to make ourselves and everyone around us miserable. But if we trust this eccentric employer who at the end of the day ultimately gives everyone who knows him the same denarius, we can be humble, confident, wonderfully unimpressed with ourselves and wonderfully unconcerned about others. Not so obsessed with our due, our order, our rank, our fair share, but with gratitude seeing God as generous and good, sovereignly dispensing his blessing as he sees fit. So let's do ourselves and everyone around us a favor. Throw off the lenses of fairness and put on lenses of grace. Do that and your world will begin to look like a much better place. And you may actually begin to see God as he is. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thank you.